Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, I don't know about you, but this morning, freezing cold, we've been having um, some problems with the lock on our front door as a result of this extreme weather. Uh, it's not locking, it's not shutting properly, but I'm not worried about it because this. This is our ferocious attack dog. We paid extra money for the... Uh, you see, he gets to guard the, uh, the remote control, so we always know where that is. He's terrifying. You can just ask any of the high school students who have been over to our house for uh, ministry. Uh, assuming he can get up the energy to get up off the couch to even greet people when they come in the door. Now, some people... Uh, I love Cody. I, don't, I get to make fun of him because he's not here, so it's fine. <laughs> We love our dog. He's very sweet. But some people, unfortunately, think of God as easy to ignore, kind of like some harmless old man dozing off on the couch in front of the TV at night, disinterested, distant, like the absent landlord idea. You've heard that before. Like he set things in motion and now he's off doing who knows what. This is what the false teachers that Peter is addressing, this is what the false teachers believe. This, insofar as there is a God, I mean, he's not really involved in this world. He's off doing who knows what. But Peter says, don't be fooled. If you have your Bibles and you look at 2 Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 3, that is the passage Michael preached on last week. And Peter says there, he's talking about the false teachers, their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Their destruction is not asleep. In other words, judgment is coming. So if Cody is your image of God, then sure, go about your life doing whatever you want, engage in, in the kind of greed and, and sensuality that these false teachers were professing and encouraging, but that's not Yahweh. That's not the God whom we serve. This might be a better image to keep in, in mind, right? The Lion of Judah, the God of the Bible, his power is unmistakable, right? His presence is overwhelming. He creates out of nothing, he parts oceans. He, he rains down fire from heaven. He raises up kings. He sends out plagues on the nations. He searches the depths of human hearts. Moses barely is given a glimpse of him, right? Isaiah falls on his face before him. The prophets they're grasping for, for, for words, for images they can use to, de, to describe the glory of God. And yet, although I know all of that to be true, at the same time, I was reading in Job this week, and I resonate with this question he raises in chapter 24. He says, why are not times of judgment kept by the Almighty? And in fact, like, like, like what, why are the times of judgment not kept by you, Lord? Why do we not see your judgment here, now, immediately, cause and effect, sin, judgment? 
And so on the one hand, we, we read in Psalm 121, right? Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Amen. That's Peter, right? But then at the same time in Job, from out of the city the dying groan, and the soul of the wounded cries for help. Yet God charges no one with wrong. Aren't there times where you, you felt this cry from Job in your own hearts? Like, where are you, God? I see this suffering and this pain. And although Second Peter assures us that God is very much not asleep at the wheel, it sometimes feels like that is indeed the case. And this, right here, this, this question is what Peter is going to address in our passage today. And, and like a lawyer carefully laying out his case, he's going to present three pieces of hard historical evidence to prove that God truly is in control. He's going to say, look, if, if even God didn't even spare the angels when they sinned, if God didn't spare the ancient world when the, he sent the flood, although he saved Noah and his family. If God didn't spare Sodom and Gomorrah, although he rescued Lot, then, conclusion, he says in verse 9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. In other words, false teachers, they will be judged. The faithful, they will be redeemed. His main point being, we can trust God that the righteous will be rescued and the unrighteous will be punished. Now, the first piece of evidence that Peter provides here is that, uh, that God did not spare the angels who sinned. So look with me in your Bibles at verse 4. Peter says, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, uh, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If God didn't even spare the angels. So how, how can we trust that, that God will indeed judge the false teachers? Well, Peter starts right at the top. He's like, look, if God didn't even spare angels in the, in the spiritual realm when they sinned, then what possible chance do false teachers have of escaping the judgment of God? But it raises a question, right? Because what sin is it that Peter's talking about here? It could be that, that he's referring to uh, the moment that's maybe captured in Isaiah uh, 14 and Ezekiel 28 that talks about Satan falling from heaven, right? We, with this description of the king of Tyre and this language so rich and evocative that, that many think this is perhaps talking about the moment when Satan was cast out of heaven. Maybe it's that sin that he's talking about, and it could be. But I think in this particular instance, Peter is actually making a reference to Genesis chapter 6, which we heard read right before the sermon. That's the passage where we read about the sons of God taking the daughters of men and, and from them coming this, these Nephilim, the giants, these men of renown. 
And of course, Peter never explicitly says, hey, look, in this place here, I'm making a reference to Genesis 6. But in the context, I think it's very likely. So the very next reference that Peter is going to make in our passage today is to Noah and the flood, which is, comes right after this in Genesis chapter 6. So it makes sense that he would be tying these two together. Also, there's a, a piece, another piece of evidence comes from Jude, the letter to Ju, uh, from Jude where he says in verse 6, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. So you can see very, very similar language here to Second uh, Peter talking about the same events. I know, again, there's still no direct reference to Genesis 6. But there is an indirect run. You see, Jude here and in a couple of other places quotes from a book called First Enoch. Now, this is a Jewish book that was popular at the time. And, and in there, First Enoch claims that the sons of God described in Genesis 6 are actually angels. That's what he says. And it was their sin of marrying, taking human wives that led to God's judgment. This is, uh, this is, this is the, uh, the letter uh, of Enoch right here. It was an ancient manuscript. Now, obviously, this book is not in your Bibles. It's not part of the canon of Scripture. It's not authoritative. It's not inspired. I'm not trying to say that it is. But it does give us an important cultural insight into what Peter is maybe speaking about. This book was written 200 years or so before Christ was born and really, really well known throughout that culture. Even the Gentiles were familiar with this story in First Enoch. And in fact, his description here of the angels marrying human wives was very, very common. This isn't the only book that speaks about it. Those uh, numerous letters and stories and, and books that describe this. And in almost every case, the conclusion was the same. The, the, the sons of God in Genesis 6, they were the angels who sinned, who rejected God's authority, pursuing sensual lusts instead. Like I said, Peter is not trying to argue that First Enoch should be part of the canon of Scripture, equally authoritative with all the other writings. But both Peter and Jude seem to be drawing from this well of, of common tradition and knowledge in their letters. And this makes a ton of sense for his argument, right? First Enoch and the other books from that time portrayed the angels as being a, a rejection of God's authority and a greedy pursuit of sensuality, right? This is exactly the kind of argument that Peter's been laying out against the false teachers, right? They reject authority, and they're pursuing their own greedy lusts. Right here in our letter, in chapter 2, he, uh, Peter talks about the false teachers. They denied their master, the, the Lord, Jesus. They promote sensuality, that's verse 2. They promote greed, verse 3. And in verse 10, in chapter 2, Peter says, 
These false teachers indulge in the lust of defiling passion and they despise authority. Now, obviously, this way of reading Genesis 6, it's strange and it's kind of bizarre and I don't fully understand it all. And it may not be the definitive explanation for Genesis 6. But whatever it was that the angels did, the result was that they were cast out by God. They were chained up by glo- in gloomy darkness, and they were kept until the final judgment. In other words, the despicable nature of their sin did not go unnoticed, and it certainly did not and will not go unpunished. Now, the application for, for Peter's audience then was quite simple, right? If God didn't even spare the angels when they sinned in this way, then there's no hope of anyone else escaping his judgment. But there is another lesson here for us as well, because God not only has full control over the physical world, but he has full control over the spiritual realm as well. Well, that means demonic forces don't run rampant and unchecked around the world, right? Both Jude and Peter affirm that demons are they're chained up. They're like dogs on a leash. It's like God's got a choke chain around their necks, keeping them from doing anything outside his will. That means their power, it's, it's limited in scope. So we may reel from their attacks, for sure, but we can and should take great confidence from the knowledge that God has them firmly under his thumb. And whether we see it ourselves or not, their judgment is certain. They're living on borrowed time. And so you don't need to live in fear of demons. It's like I sort of imagine like the, the, the T-Rex, right, with these teeny little arms. Like their reach are, is limited, and they, they can't get you unless God allows it to happen. And although the devil ro- roams around, right, uh, like, like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And we can stand firm in confidence, knowing that God has defeated all evil. Now, the second piece of evidence that Peter gives here to support his assertion is that God judged the ancient world in the flood, although he saved Noah and his family. Now, about 10 years ago, uh, there was an author and an ex-pastor named Rob Bell who wrote a book called Love Wins. Maybe Some of you are familiar with it. It's like a decade ago now. At the time, it kicked up a huge fuss, right? He was kind of arguing for this inclusivism, like in the end, everyone gets to go to heaven. There's no heaven and hell. It's all just God loves everybody. And his book was totally rebuked by many, many people, and rightly so. But at the same time, it was really interesting. There was this pushback from people saying, whoa, hold on, like where's the grace? And and he's not like a bad guy, and he means well, and we need to be more charitable and fair and understanding. And I understand that we don't want to resort ever to 
just ad hominem attacks, uh, you know, berating someone's character. But at the same time, let me share with you a story. Because around that time, we knew a woman whose husband got a hold of that book and devoured it. Now, he was already weak in his faith. He was battling uh, some sexual addictions. And this book kind of pushed him over the edge. Not long afterwards, he abandoned his faith. He walked out on his wife and kids, and he got a divorce. They had four kids at the time. Now, obviously, in any marital conflict, there's a lot of issues going on. But he himself cited this book as a thing that drove him away from the church. He said, like, this is the book. I read this book, and I can't stay in the church anymore as a result. It was the trigger that sent him off on this other trajectory, leaving his wife and his kids to pick up the pieces behind him. Doctrine really matters, right? There are ramifications to what we believe. It's why James said, like, not many of you should presume to be teachers because you're going to be judged more strictly. That's a prime example of what James is talking about. And this is why Peter is so worked up about false teachers. This is not just like nice things we talk about. Lives hang in the balance. This isn't an academic exercise. So look at verse 5 in your Bibles. Peter continues. And he says, uh, he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. The story of the flood was just as familiar to Peter's audience as it is to us today. Everyone knew what he was talking about. In fact, the reference to Noah and the flood was, was commonly used as, as an example to talk about the inevitability of God's judgment, right, on wickedness and evil. What's amazing to me is that Peter uses this as an example to talk about the false teachers, right? He's essentially putting them in the same category as the people alive at the time of the flood whose every intention was only evil continually. That's how big of a deal false teaching is to Peter. Those who persist in it will not be spared. They will be washed away completely. I don't want to sound irreverent, but it, it's sort of like um, I, the visual image for me in my head is one of those power washers that you use to clean your driveway, right? Like that intense jet of water erasing all the dirt. God will cleanse and purify his church to protect his people, and to bring glory to his name. That's the bad news, right? If you're, if you're a false teacher, that's the bad news. But there's good news here as well. He preserved Noah and his family with him, right? Now, now Noah, we know from Genesis 6-9, was, was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Not only that, he walked with God. But it's interesting to me because... We don't really know much about the rest of his family. We know that they weren't sinless, that's for sure, right? Even Noah himself gets drunk shortly after the flood, and then his son goes in and, and, and is 
chastised for his sin, and their family wasn't perfect. But what we see here is a beautiful picture of God's gracious provision, his merciful protection despite their imperfection. Noah is described, like I just said, as, as having walked with God. In other words, he enjoyed this, this rare kind of intimacy with the Lord. Peter expands on that by saying Peter, uh, uh, Noah was a, a herald of righteousness, a, a preacher. He proclaimed righteousness. Now, Genesis 6 doesn't talk about that, but, but we can assume, right, for however long it, he was building the ark People are asking him, and he's speaking about God into that context. Right? Peter seems to be saying, look, God saves those who faithfully preach the gospel, while false teachers, those who herald or proclaim any other kind of message at all, will be destroyed. And look, that message is not just directed towards the four pastors in the room. Like, he's just talking about false teachers and true teachers. So, so, you know, I mean, it is addressed to us, but we're all teaching in different ways. With every part of your lives, every relationship, conversation, the way you handle yourselves at school, right? On your teams, in, in your community, at work, how you respond to your emails, how you speak to others, how you deal with your friends and interact with other people. And the question is, what kind of people are you going to be? I'm guessing some of you are familiar with the, uh, the author and the pastor, Eugene Peterson, who wrote the, the, the book, The Message. It's a very, very loose translation, interpretation of the Bible. But he also wrote a lot of other books, and in one of his books, he, he talks about this idea of congruence. A congruence is basically this idea that, that who we are and how we act should be the same. They should line up, right? So you imagine if you go to see a musical, and this beautiful woman comes up, and she takes center stage, and she opens her mouth to start singing you expect to hear a beautiful voice, right? That, that's congruent with, with what the situation is. Now, the opposite would be, you know, these photos that we see uh, of Mount Everest. This beautiful, the tallest mountain in the world, but packed with tourists and covered with trash from all the people who have gone out there. That's, that kind of thing is jarring. It's not congruent, it's what Jesus talks about when he, he says, you know, a good tree should bear good fruit. That's what we're expecting to see. And disciples of Jesus should reflect their master. Your, your character, your desires, your purpose, they should all be reflective of his work in your life. They should demonstrate that like Noah, you truly walk with God. You, you've been given that gift, right? We talked about this at Christmas. Emmanuel, God with us. You have the Spirit of God living within you. You walk with Him daily, and your life should reflect that truth. We should truly be bearing His image to the world around us. So what steps are you taking to cultivate that kind of 
congruence in your life? What specific habits and practices are you either setting to one side or or seeking to pursue? And then how can we together as, as a family, a spiritual family, support and encourage each other as we try to be a kind of people who proclaim righteousness to the world that is drowning in sin? Well, this brings us to our third uh, piece of evidence here. God did not spare Sodom and Gomorrah, although he did save Lot. If you look at verse 6, it says, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to, to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. You know, Sodom and Gomorrah have always stood as examples of God's judgment on unrepentant sin, Right? Stories familiar enough, God sends these angels down into the city because he's heard of their wickedness and, and they try to rescue Lot and in the end they literally have to sort of like drag him out of the city, rescue him by the, rescued by the skin of his teeth. His wife turns around at the last minute, turns into a pillar of salt before the cities as the cities are destroyed. Now Philo of Alexandria, he was a philosopher and he was a writer at the time, uh, around the time of Jesus. And he talked about this passage of Scripture, and he said, in a way, it was it was a little bit like like God was was uncreating His creation in that moment, right? He was using the elements that He had used to bring the world together to bring judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah for their sin. They were made from ashes. Well, like these ashes I have here. They were made from ashes, and to ashes they would then return. And this happened, Peter says in verse 6, very explicitly as an example. It's like it isn't just like some random city that had a meteorite fall on top of it. This was a very purposeful and specific example that God made of these cities of what would happen to the ungodly. But as with the flood, God also did something truly amazing in this moment. Right? He rescues Lot and his family. I've got to pause here for a moment because if you're familiar with Genesis, then it's a little weird to read Peter say, Righteous Lot, righteous Lot. I mean, he keeps talking about how righteous Lot is. And you're like, wait a second, let me review what was going on here. Um, uh, they're trying to, the people of the town are trying to batter down the door, and he's like, offers them his daughters instead to this angry mob. And then he's trying, the angel's like, you need to get out of town. And they're like, really? I mean, the text says he's lingering, he's waiting around. They, they drag him out of the town, and he's like, uh, they're like, flee to the hills. And he's like, ah, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm kind of scared to go up there. I'm like, fine, go to the city. And then he gets scared in the city, and 
Then he goes and hides in a cave, and then he gets drunk with disastrous consequences. Look, Lot isn't perfect. We know that. But neither were many other people in the Bible, right? Abraham, child with, with, with Hagar, lies about his wife, repeatedly putting her in dangerous situations. We have Moses, murderer, literally kills someone with his own hands. Uh, uh, David, right, adulterer, and then uses his power as the king to hide up that adultery and have his lover's husband killed. I'm not trying to minimize their sins. They are painfully real. God never excuses them. Many others in the Bible are judged for far less sins, right? We should never confuse God's willingness to work through sinful people with his sort of approval of that sin in their lives. But this passage is also a reminder, I think, to me, that people are far more complex than we want them to be, right? And is it not possible that Lot could have been genuinely distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked all around him, as Peter says here, and also still not be ready to leave everything behind? Is it not possible that he was indeed, as Peter says, tormented daily by their lawless deeds that he saw all around him, and yet at the same time also still lived in fear of other people and what they might think of him? That he was both righteous and also prone to getting drunk and making foolish decisions. Because if God's grace can extend to Lot in the middle of his mess, how much more patient is God going to be with us in our mess? When we are often every bit as inconsistent as some of these people whose lives we read about in the Bible. And especially now, since we're covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, who has cleansed us from all sin and allows us to live in his presence. So I think we're all, like Lot, greatly distressed by the sin that we see around us, horrified by the greed and lust of our culture. And the question is, how are we going to respond if you look back at Genesis 19, perhaps the only thing that really shines brightly for me when I read that passage is Lot's attempts to reach his sons-in-law. Like there we sense this urgency where he tries to plead with them to leave the city. He loves them clearly and he shows concern for them. So whose hand are you going to draw? grab to kind of drag out of the sinful world in which we live right now. This isn't like a circle the wagons kind of moment. We can't just hunker down and wait for the end. Praise the Lord, we're on the lifeboat and just let everyone else drown. Who around you is desperately in need of rescue? Are you truly tormented, not just by the, the sin that's out there, by but by the thought of the loss for eternity of the lives of these people who are trapped in that sin. Like Lot, you may not be able to guarantee their response, but will you at least take that step of faith to reach out to them with the gospel? 
warning them of the judgment that is to come. Well, having presented all these three pieces of evidence, Peter then moves to his conclusion. He says, look, if God didn't spare the angels, if God didn't spare the ancient world, if God didn't spare Sodom and Gomorrah, although he did save Noah and Lot in the process, then, as I said at the beginning, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly and to keep the unrighteous under punishment. All evil is going to be punished, right? Not one ounce of it will go unnoticed or ignored. The abuse, the deceit, the lies, the the evil, none of it, none of it can remain hidden before the blazing glory of God. That, That brings me comfort. When I look around, I think there is so much out there, and I feel so powerless to do anything significant about it. And God says, I have it under control. None of it goes, uh, passes by without me seeing it. But at the same time, God can and he will rescue the godly from trials. I was reading, I was a, a professor, Michael Green, he points out here, he says, God rescues out of trials, not away from them. Noah and Lot, they Lot lived in Sodom and Gomorrah for years before God plucks him out of that city. Noah building the ark for years before God rescues them from that flood. But there is one final piece of evidence that we haven't touched on yet. And that's the cross. This is the the final proof, right? The ultimate evidence of both God's justice and his mercy, the place where all sin was atoned for, where all evil was defeated, where judgment was passed, but at the same time, the place where sinners like, like you and me were set free, where we were rescued, where we were redeemed, where we were stored, delivered from destruction through the life-giving sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The cross, the place where our own sinful rebellion was dealt with once and for all, so that we might truly be able to walk with God as his beloved sons and daughters, so that we might no longer have to live in fear, but enjoy fullness of joy in his presence, both now and for eternity. Would you pray with me? Lord, you are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Lord, we're thankful that you are both the judge of the wicked and the redeemer of those who need your help. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to live for your glory, to proclaim that message of hope to the world this week. In your name, amen.